0: Good morning to each of you. If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Today we're continuing on in chapter 2 of this wonderful epistle. Philippians chapter 2. The last two weeks we've spent considerable time looking at verses 5 to 8 in detail regarding our Lord's humiliation. This week, we come to the opposite of that, our Lord's exaltation. And the title of the message is, Highly Exalted Above All. And I think that will make sense as we go through it. Isn't it true that in Holy Scripture, there's not many texts that, that detail the, 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 the depths of his humiliation and the heights of his exaltation within just a few verses? This text stands above many other texts, and it's a wonderful text to dig into and to study. And I'm so glad we've taken three weeks on this, verses 6 to 11, this unit contained herein. And if you take away either one of those, you've corrupted the gospel, because you need both of those to complete the gospel message of who Christ is. Isn't it true, those of us who are born again, we love the name Jesus Christ. We love the name that he is Lord of my life. We, we love those things. And, and when we hear of our Lord being slandered, we can take that personally because we are his children. We can take that and, and, and personally, but then also when we, when we hear him being slandered, um, we can think of the psalmist, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me where we take, in a sense, some of that pain as Christ is being slandered. In First Peter chapter 1, talking about the wonder of the salvation that we enjoy, Peter writes and says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see, what the prophets were enamored at and amazed at, at looking forward, was both the concept of Messiah's suffering on the one hand, but the ultimate glory that would come as a result. And Peter is just one of those texts. In fact, Isaiah 53, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but, but that text speaks of him being Highly exalted on the one hand, but he would be the suffering servant, but ultimately exalted in the end. Remember now, the theme that we've been considering is this theme of humility, this theme of maintaining unity amongst ourselves as the body of Christ, and the, the key to doing that is to cultivate humility. And so the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ has really been an illustration of how we do this. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 5. Verses 3 and 4, we've looked at several times, do nothing from selfishness, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So really what Paul does is he gives an illustration of Christ's humiliation and how he is exalted in due time. Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi to put off these selfish, uh, annoying annoyances and all of these things of exerting your own rights and to cultivate humility, to put to death the putrid pride that may remain in our sinful hearts. You know, this truth of whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted, is taught by not only Jesus Christ, not only Paul, but Peter and James as well. So in a sense, this principle is taught, and we see here that principle being applied even to Christ, the God-man. So let's read the text. I'm going to read verses 6 to 11 for us just to get the broader context. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help once again. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you, Lord, as a needy people. We come before you, Lord, as as those who want to see more of Christ today. Lord, our desperate need is to understand in a fuller sense the wonderful gospel message, to see in a fuller sense the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the holy scriptures to see him not only as the one who is resurrected, the one who is ascended to your right hand, the one who rules everything in complete sovereignty, the one who is indeed the head of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also the one who is our great high priest, who intercedes for us. Would you open our eyes? Would you soften hard hearts? May your word... Dig deep and between joints and marrow. May it judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart, O oh God, that we might be those who come panting for more of Christ, we pray in His precious name. Amen. So, Picking up from verse 6, we we, we spoke about how he existed in the form of God. That is, that he really was and, and is the Son of God when he came to take on this humanity. We also spoke that he took on a real humanity. He really became a man. It wasn't a figment, it wasn't the shell of a man or anything like that. In fact, listen to Spurgeon as he comments on this. He says, remember, Christ was not a deified man, Neither was he a humanized God, he was perfectly God, and at the same time, perfectly man. And doesn't that sum up the idea, the hypostatic union that we talked about? The two natures of God and man being in one person. But having said that, he empties himself. He takes the form of a bondservant. He comes in the form of a bondservant. It's one thing just to become man and to don human flesh and to be amongst sinners as the sinless one, but then to degrade even further to become a slave towards those men and then ultimately to die a horrible and terrible death on the cross with you and you in view. Because if you are his child, he paid for your sins as he was dying on the cross. But we come today to this decisive shift, as it were, in this poem or hymn or whatever it was that that Paul was quoting. It's inspired because Paul included it here. But there's a decisive change that happens in verse 9. It's a radical shift, as it were. And in verses 6 to 8, Christ has been the subject of these verbs, these are the things that he is doing. He's humbling himself. He's emptying himself. He's taking the form of a bondservant. But in verse 9, there's a shift. The father intervenes to do something now. And it is the father who exalts his own son and that bestows upon him a name above every other name. To be sure, Christ, as it were, certainly became a man, even a, a worm of a man, as it were, as he, as he humbled himself. So low, but God highly exalted Him. We see that He endured the cross for the joy set before Him, and because of that, He is crowned with honor and glory for all time. So we're going to consider this text under three heads. In verse 9, Christ's exaltation comprehended, which we need to understand. Secondly, the unwavering response required by us in verses 10 and 11a, and then in verse 11b, the ultimate purpose is for the glory of God. So first of all, Christ's exaltation comprehended. We need to understand what all is involved here, what this means. So we're going to unpack it for a little while. First of all, look at the text. Some of your Bibles might say, therefore. The NAS reads, for this reason, and it is a word, that is a, it's a contrast, and it throws immediately, you look back to verses 6 to 8 to see, okay, why, for what reason? Well, verses 6 to 8, everything that's happened is humiliation. But then it's intensified, and In the original, it comes out much stronger with the chi there, the also, for this reason, also God intervenes, that's really what it is. God comes and intervenes and it says that he highly exalted him. We're just going to consider that. Of course, after spending a couple weeks on the humiliation, this has been a great delight this past week to see now the exaltation of Christ, and and just as we had used the analogy of He stepping lower and lower and lower and lower in His humiliation, now as it were the exaltation rises higher and higher and higher, And, and I hope that comes clear. As I said, the father is the subject of these two main verbs, highly exalted and bestowed. Those are the main verbs in these three verses here. The father's action is really reciprocal uh, um, response to the death of his own son. Now, this word highly exalted, the word exalt is very common in in the Bible, and it can occur, I mean, it can refer not only to God, But it's very common, but this, there's a, it's a, it's a compound word that intensifies it. He's not just exalted, he's highly exalted. It's like exalted on steroids, you might think. Super exalted would be a way to put it. And I made reference to Isaiah 53, that section, those five stanzas. And in the very first one, which is actually Isaiah 52, in verse 13, listen to how it begins. This is about the suffering servant. Reveals so many details about the death of Christ 700 years before he was even born. He begins that section Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. In the whole Hebrew Old Testament, it's been, I didn't recheck this this week, but I know when I studied this out. Those three terms are not applied to anyone else except for Christ, uh, to Christ in that section. So it's amazing that in that Isaiah 53 passage, which we often think he had no stately form, he's so harshly treated, he's pierced through for our transgressions, all of those vivid details which are true and which are real, in the midst of all of that, at the very beginning, it states that he will be greatly exalted and high. Because of his voluntary humility and suffering and fulfilling the Father's will to the T, did not waver whatsoever, but he came to do the Father's will. He is highly exalted, not only as the Son of Man, but as the Son of God. The glorious reward which Jesus described, uh, receives, here is described as as being highly exalted. Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We stated that's a general principle. It occurs many times in the Bible. Yet here there's this difference between his exaltation and our exaltation. Our exaltation, when we humble ourselves, is very, very limited. His is, like I said, it's on steroids. It's super exalted. It applies only to Him, the verb that is here. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Isn't it interesting how many times we've referred to the book of Hebrews in this, uh, just these verses? In the last several weeks, we've looked at various sections here, and we're going to look at one here. Look at Hebrews one. And verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed an heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. In verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever. Your righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. These are all verses pulled from the Psalms, not all of them, but beginning in verse 4, Pointing to Christ. And we're going to come back to that chapter. And Psalm 8, that beautiful psalm, which I almost chose for our Old Testament reading, but it speaks of, of him being made a little lower than the angels, but yet being crowned with glory and majesty. So let's consider these steps of exaltation, as it were, as we just want to unpack this first phrase of him being super exalted. First of all, consider his resurrection. Remember when the angel, or when the women came to the tomb, what did the angel tell the women? He is not here. He is what? He is risen, right? He's not here. He is risen. And Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, this Jesus who I'm speaking of, whom you crucified, this Jesus, God raised from the dead, he raised him up. But secondly, also his ascension. Jesus says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brethren to say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. In Acts 1.9, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him from their sight. Roberts, Robinson in his word picture says, what glory did Christ have after the ascension that he did not have before he went to heaven? It's a good question, okay? And what did he take back to heaven that he did not bring? Clearly his humanity. Clearly his humanity. He returns as the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens John Calvin says, "Christ has taken was taken up to heaven not to enjoy the blessed rest at a distance from us, but to govern the world for the salvation of all believers. In other words, there 's a sense in which his priestly work is accomplished, in which he has sat down, as it says in Ephesians one, which no other high priest has ever done. He sat down because that work is done. However, there is still an active working and intercession of his priestly role of praying for us, interceding for us, ruling all things, which leads us to the third step up, his crowning authority. In the Great Commission, what does he begin with? All authority has been what? Given to me. All authority. In Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and to grant the forgiveness of sins. So, from heaven, he reigns supremely. He reigns in complete sovereignty. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. You see this played out in a very beautiful way after this opening statement, one sentence, verse 3 to 14, describing our election and predestination and adoption and, and the redemption of Christ, the seal of the Spirit, and then these, uh, what, what Paul prays. And then at the end, he says in verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Notice, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you see there a very clear, succinct statement. Not only, I mean, you've got his resurrection, his ascension, his crowning authority that he rules and power, and not only the the idea of all over the the spiritual realities, the rule and authority, power, dominion, all, all of that, but also over the church and all things. We saw in Revelation 5 that beautiful section of Scripture, which just builds and builds and builds and builds, and and this this heavenly anthem and song of what they say in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." You know, that's a verse to just read and to meditate on and to think about what each one of those means. He was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And then, of course, we know that the next section, which even that just builds and builds, it's all the creation is worshiping him. And it's even given the the term in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. But next, we ascend even higher as far as being exalted, that he is the great and final high priest. Once again, Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 25, I'll just read it. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Romans 8, says that he 's at the right hand of the Father and that he intercedes for us, so he is the last great and final high priest, the par excellence once and for all, his work is accomplished hebrews two nine says him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because he suffered because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. So the first thing the father does in response to this humiliation of Christ, is that he super-exalts him. The second thing he does is he bestows something upon him. What does he bestow? Let's turn back to Philippians. What exactly is it that he bestows? In verse 9, "...highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name." The name, which is above every name. I'm purposely not reading on for a moment. I want us to think about this. I want us to think about what name this is. First of all, let's talk about the verb. This, this, this verb, to bestow, has grace at its root. It's to graciously give. It's to wholeheartedly give. And that might be a, a more complete idea. But what does he give them? He gives them a name. It's not or the name. It's not just a name. It is the name. Definite article is is here. And so what is that name? Well, we know so far in verse 9 that it is a name above every other name. You see, you see how it's related to him being exalted, and then he's bestowed this name, which is above every other name. Well, we know that that communicates a couple of things. His rank and his authority, once again. And John 17, is high priestly prayer Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We know that every human will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will answer for how they've lived. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we've struggled to fully understand in some way The depths of the incarnation and to grasp all the complexities of it. It's deep. There's deep theological waters, as we've said. But it's even harder to imagine, for me at least, that now that he is exalted, now that he is ascended, now that he's at the right hand of God, that he remains the God man. That is, that he remains in a human body. How else? Could he be the great high priest that can exercise compassion that he knows, and he's been tempted in every way, just as you are? He had to be a a, a complete, full, 100% human. It wasn't as though he was a deified man, as as Spurgeon said, a deified human. No, he was the God-man. He was both. But he was tempted in all these things, and yet was without sin. That's why we can run to him. That's why we can know that he will have compassion on us and he will hear us and he will pray for us and he will help us, as it says in Hebrews 4, to give us help at just the right time. Listen to William Hendrickson in his commentary. The exaltation is the reversal of humiliation. He who stood condemned in relation to divine law because the sin of the world rested upon him has exchanged this penal for the righteous relation to the law. He who was poor became rich. He who was rejected has now been accepted. He who learned obedience has entered upon the actual administration of the power and authority committed to him. He goes on, As a king, having by his death, resurrection, and ascension achieved and displayed triumph over his enemies, He now holds in his hands the reins of the universe and he rules all things in the interest of the church. As a prophet, he, though his spirit leads them in all truth, as a priest, he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And on this basis has accomplished atonement and not only intercedes but actually lives forever to make intercession for those who draw near to God. End quote. So what did the Father bestow? He bestowed uh, bestowed the name. The name, not a name. So what is the name? We know that name represents rank, honor, status, these types of things. It reveals oftentimes the true nature and qualities of a person um, is is included in their name or their title. It is incomparable for Christ to, to any other name. And names are important in the Bible. You see Abram being named what? Abraham, right? You see Jacob being named Israel. And what's the purpose for this? These these new names are fit for the new role or calling that these people were called to. And so in Hebrews one four, when it says, "Having become as much better than the angels, he has an inherited he has inherited a name more excellent, a more excellent name than they." But what is the name? Some say, well, of course, it's the name Jesus, right? Or it's the name Christ, or it's the name Lord. Well, which one is it? Well, we have to look at this very carefully here. He bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Follow with me, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are on heaven, in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think the idea here is that he is Lord. Everything that is speaking of how he is super exalted, how he is ruling, is one of that demands submission by us. That he is indeed Lord. The name Jesus is important, but it was a common name. Uh, You know, it was a common name during that time. Christ, yes, of course he's Messiah. We know that that's true. But I believe that what this is pushing towards is the fact that he is Lord. Lord represented the name Yahweh in the Old Testament. So many times, even in our scripture reading, when they did not want to write out Yahweh, they would substitute Lord. And so it referred to God. And again and again, now what's being shown is the deity of Christ, that he is indeed God in the flesh. There's a couple of grammatical reasons which I, I won't bore you with as far as the purpose clause in verse 10 and how it's connected to verse 11, but I believe that that's what it's stating. Verse 6, God becomes a man. Verse 7, he becomes a slave and he is exalted to Lord. Lord. He is exalted to ruling. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. It's said of our Lord Jesus Christ that in Revelation 19, this picture of judgment, that on his robe and on his thigh, there is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, we know there's lots of other names for Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, he is the door. He's the resurrection and the life. All so forth. He's all of this. He's a lamb, of course, but he is Lord. And if you turn back to Isaiah 45, I just want to unpack this for us. Isaiah 45, that was our Old Testament scripture reading. I want us to see this in its context. Paul is actually quoting Isaiah 45, the phrase where it says that. Every knee will bow is a quote from this text. Now, the broader context, verse 18, um, the Lord is the one who's created the heavens, okay? The Lord is the one that's distinct from idols. In verse 21, the end of it, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except for me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, I am God, and there is no other. And then notice verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, and they will say, only the Lord our righteousness and strength. You see there the idea of confessing, right? With the idea of bowing the knee and then confessing allegiance to the Lord. What's being demonstrated here is that Jesus indeed is God. He is the God man, and so he rules over all creation. In these tremendous statements, it's important to remind us that the context of this most practical um, uh, illustration that Paul's giving is that we would put aside disunity and, and discord and personal ambition, and all of that, and that we would humble ourselves for the sake of unity. We would have the attitude that Christ had by virtue of our union with him. So we've tried to understand this exaltation and to comprehend it. Now, secondly, verses 10 and 11a, the unwavering response required. And these last two points are going to be briefer than the first one. First of all, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Notice the so that there. That's that's a hina purpose clause. This is the reason. In other words, verse ten and eleven are all modifying verse nine, where, where the main verbs occur. There are the verbs here, but they're verbs of result of bowing and confessing, and so. The focus is on Lord, kurios, in the Greek, which became a common term for an employer, some person of dignity, a a family member, an older, elder family member, so forth, the Lord that owns such and such property. It was a person, in authority. Lord communicates a wealth of truth to us here, that his sovereignty, his deity, his rule over all things. As early as the Apostles' Creed in the 4th century, it states, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So bowing the knee then is an act of homage. It's an act of submission before the one we are bowing to. And here the language is repeated again, that at the, at, at the name of Jesus, the Lord, everyone kneels. Think of how many times in the New Testament, Christ's authority is um, asserted for us. Just John 5, we'll just look at that for a moment, where Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. We've already talked about Revelation. Five are all the celestial beings around the throne falling down and worshiping the victorious lamb because he has conquered, he has completed his work. In the last judgment, even those who are condemned to hell will recognize the authority of Christ and and his right rule to send them to a place of everlasting torment. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that even applies to some of us, because some of us want to be our own authority. Some of us don't want to submit to authority. Some of us resist submitting to authority. Well, if you're outside of Christ, you will submit to this authority. You may get away with not submitting to governing officials or to police officers, but you will submit to this authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only will you bow the knee, you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as I began earlier, those words are words of comfort to us. Those who who know that their sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, and we hear those words, and when we hear he is Lord, we gladly submit to him because he's the sovereign one, and he knows what's best for us in our lives. Even through the difficult times, we bow down and we submit to him. It warms our hearts to hear the name Jesus. We want to promote Jesus Christ. We want to we want to exalt in the fame of his name as it were. We want to make his name known to a lost and dying world. It's interesting. Sometimes you watch these National Geographic shows where they're showing all the wonders of creation and the exotic birds and the tropical fish and just amazing colors and as the narrator goes on he keeps stating something it's a different name than the name you want to hear that has created all of this look what nature has done here look how nature has created the intricacies of these eyes and the ear and this fish and all of that and you want to stand up and shake the box and say no Christ is the one who has created this. There is a God who's behind all of this. It's not nature that has done these things. But then notice, it says those who are in heaven, that is, redeemed believers from all ages, including angels. Those who are on the earth, that would include those who are are among the redeemed and those who have not um, been saved yet, the unsaved. And then those who are under the earth. Uh, That phrase occurs only here in the Greek New Testament, speaking of the wicked and fallen angels and sinners awaiting judgment. Jude 6 alludes to this, speaking of the abode in which evil spirits and disobedient angels, the angels who did not keep their position or authority are bound with everlasting chains for judgment. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. What does it mean, young people, to confess? Well, that's when I get in trouble and I have to confess that I've sinned in some way. Yeah. It, in a sense, maybe, but in this context, to confess is to agree with that I really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the King of the universe, that He is the one that's been now exalted up, and He is the one to be submitted to and the one to worship. It means in the original to make a public declaration. And it's also, um, it's related to a word that, that means giving praise and thanksgiving. So sometimes in our prayer meetings, we'll have opportunity for that. It's confessing, agreeing with. Think of some of the confessions in the Bible, just to name a couple. When the shepherds saw the great light and they went and they said, they went and declared that a Savior has been born or maybe more pointedly, after the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus appears to um, first the 11, um, and, then with, uh, and then Thomas is here, and Thomas touches, and he says, my Lord and my God. Actually, we don't know if he touched his hand. Jesus said, put here your finger into my hand. We, I don't even think he had to do that. But what does he do? He confesses, my Lord and my God. He realized that this is the God-man. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed, or no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we know this passage. You young children, you listening, <laughs> okay? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Right? and then believe in your heart that God did raise him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, well, come on, that's too simple. Isn't there gotta be a list of good works i have gotta do, of penance I have to do, and all of that? No, it really is that simple. There's, there's complexities to that, because to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord means, in relation to what I just said, that no one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. And so you must Look to Christ. And there's something else that's very important that needs to be communicated here, and that is the whole idea of some that say you can have Jesus as Savior, but you don't need him as Lord. In other words, I'll take him as Savior, but I'll postpone the Lord part because I want to live my own life. Um, John MacArthur's written books on this and many articles and so forth, this lordship controversy. Um, That is folly. You can't have him as Savior if you're not going to have him as Lord. You can't have a divided Christ. I'll take half of Christ today, and maybe I'll get the other half later. You, am I the only one that thinks that's folly? <laughs> if you're going to claim that he is your savior and that you're embracing him by faith, that means a radical transformation for all creatures. who are in, For in Christ, we're new creatures. So there's a radical transformation that takes place. Peter, again, preaching at Pentecost, God has made him, listen, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, he is Lord, he is Messiah, that's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is Savior only to those who will submit to him as Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, To them there was but one God, the Father, and but one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we've considered the exaltation, um, sought to comprehend that, the unwavering response. We must bow the knee. We must confess that he is Lord. And very briefly, the sovereign or supreme purpose, ultimate purpose is for the glory of God. Look at the end of verse 11. All of this, verse 10 to 11a, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess is noticed to the glory of God the Father. It's very important because that does modify what has just gone before. So, what does this mean? This means that the lordship of Christ and his rule over the church brings glory to God. This hymn that began speaking of of the Son who existed in the form of God, now in verse 9, with the Father's intervention, has exalted the Son, and that brings glory to Himself. We love the five solas of the Reformation, and the final one is sola de la gloria, to God be the glory. That is our banner. We want God to be glorified. So when divine honors are are paid to the... uh, Humiliated but exalted Christ, when we worship him as, as we're worshiping now, the glory goes to God the Father. It is enhanced by us worshiping and submitting to the Son. John 13, Jesus said, Now the Son is glorified, and God is glorified in him. You see that? So the Father is glorified as Christ is glorified. Well, that's just a couple of concluding thoughts. First of all, will you bow the knee to Jesus Christ if you're here today? You will be forced to bow the knee. You will be forced to confess that he is Lord. And so if you're outside of Christ today, confess him today. See your sin as an offense to a holy God. Repudiate it, turn from it, and look to Christ who is a compassionate Savior who died for sinners. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. It says in 1 John, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. He is worthy of our worship. All of our songs have focused on um, on exalting Him, glorifying Him, calling Him Lord. He is worthy of our worship. He is what makes worship such a delight because we know what He's done for us. What is worship? But just a response of what God has done to us and we express His His inestimable worth to us. And so we worship Him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, if you're outside of Christ, I encourage you to see the good news of the Gospel today and don't harden your heart. In Revelation chapter 19, it speaks of This Christ, when he comes again, he comes on a white horse. He's called Faithful and True. He comes in righteousness, and he judges, and he wages war. Listen to this description. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of lords, you don't want to wait to come to Christ until you see this, when he comes in judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. There are no second chances, so flee to Christ today. Listen what Jesus says at that wonderful feast as he cries out in John 7. He cries out and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But you must humble yourself. You must come to him, beg him to save you. He will turn away none if you come in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is authoritative in our lives. It is inspired. It is practical. Lord, we thank you that even this dense, theological section on the humiliation and exaltation of Christ even comes in the midst of a practical exhortation to humbling our carnal pride and maintaining the unity of the brethren. Lord, may we see that this is something that you prize, for we know that Christ is the head of this church and each true local church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would honor and glorify him as members of this church. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that our worship would be pure. Lord, we pray for any outside of Christ that today would be the day of salvation. Have mercy, we pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.